Hello, and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Tammy Spence. Tammy is the founder and executive director of Second Shift, an organization based in Alabaster, Alabama, that supports young people aging out of foster care. Well, welcome, Tammy. Thank you so much for participating in AOI's podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm good, Lynn. How are you? I'm also well. Thank you very much. I am really excited to find out about your organization today. But first, I usually like to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about yourself and how is it that you're connected with the foster care system? First, I do want to say thank you again for inviting me today. Really value your work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. So in answer to your question, I arrived at this place by way of a broken road that was built by both lived experience and my employment. I'm an adoptive parent. I became an adoptive parent after almost a decade of infertility. My oldest two children came to us through the foster care system. So our children were very young when they joined our family, and we assumed incorrectly that because they were very young, they would be very resilient, but they were not very resilient, and they had a lot of trauma, which presented in a lot of behaviors that we were not prepared for. So in learning about how to help my very challenged children, I decided to go back to school and try to help families like ours. So I completed my bachelor's degree in family studies and psychology, and then I received my MSW. When I graduated from grad school, then I began to look for a job that would allow me to help families like ours. And I learned that the reason there wasn't a lot of help was because there were no organizations or agencies in the area that were doing that work. So I found a job as a therapist for adolescent boys in a residential facility. And that experience shifted my entire paradigm. So I began to see the experience of kids in care and I watched them age out unprepared and unattached to anyone. So this just horrified me. The realities of the lives of older adolescents in care, specifically in residential care, the way they were allowed to leave care with no preparation or supports in place shocked me. I had no idea. So during that time, a colleague of mine and I would have these excessively long conversations that lasted for hours, wondering how this could happen and why did no one do anything to fix it. So we would just spend hours and hours complaining about that. And ironically, as therapists, it was our job to empower our clients to affect change in their lives, right? But we never saw our own power to affect change at all. Then we decided to write a book. So we were going to compile a book of the stories of the youth that we worked with because the kids are just, they have so many insights and their ability to shine light on the injustices that they lived with just was so impressive. We wanted to give them voice. So my colleague and I outlined this book. And when we talked about marketing it, I told her I did not want to profit off their stories So maybe we could use any money that we made to form a nonprofit to help them. And at that point, the light went on and we realized that we did have power to affect change. So we formed a nonprofit and Second Shift was born. Wow. So you formed this with your colleague. 
We did. We were founding members. She was part of the board at the time, and she's moved on since then. She kept her full-time job, and I worked full-time to start Second Shift. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Help me understand, maybe before we talk about Second Shift, you said you had long conversations about why these young people are not prepared to transition to adulthood. From what you saw, what's your thinking about why these young people are not prepared? What's the root cause? I think that it's very complex. Um, I think there's so many reasons that they're not prepared, and a lot of it is systemic. There's not a system that's set up to prepare them. There's so many different pieces. It's just broken in theory and logistically. For instance, I've worked at more than one residential facility and I have now worked with, you know, just about every county in my state. And Alabama, every county is different and they have different policies and they come at independent living differently and transitional living differently. So each of those counties has a different way of doing their transition. And the state's trying to get it all on one page. But because of that, there's not any consistent plan. So there's not a consistent plan for life skill education. If a child is in a transitional living facility, just the logistics of that, having staff, say there's eight people in a house living together and there's a staff person. So if a child needs to get their driver's license, trying to arrange for driving practice when there's one vehicle and one staff and getting all of those kids together, because you can't just leave them by themselves. You have to have them together. And if somebody doesn't want to go or somebody has to work, it's just logistically impossible. And I think people don't realize that. And it's really hard to fix to go in and try to help. So kids age out without a driver's license, which is a huge disability. It's huge. That leads to their unemployment and homelessness, which leads to incarceration. So just trying to fix those little things. I know here in Alabama, it's just virtually impossible because we have to go in and we have to change the structure of all of the different counties and all the different facilities. And then foster homes, too. Most of our older kids here are in residential care, but even foster homes are going to vary from house to house and family to family with different needs and different demands on their family and different abilities. It's just really complex. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, some people have the impression that it's just the the quote-unquote system doesn't care. Right. And you bring up a very good point that the system is, if you look at it nationally, the system is huge. Even at a state level, the system mm-hmm. is, is very, very large. It's hard to change a big system like that to begin with. What you're talking about are, like you're saying, all the logistics just to make all of that happen is very challenging. And it's also different in urban areas versus rural areas Absolutely. because it's, it's tough to drive to activities and trainings and so forth, especially when you're out in the rural areas. And it's just all sorts of different issues and problems, like you're saying. It is. That's a good point. And unfortunately, a lot of the residential facilities are in rural areas. And so those kids, they don't have access to many things that they need. So maybe one solution, I want to say there's only one solution, but one solution might be if you look at all the great organizations, the nonprofits that are out there around the country, and there are a lot, and there are more, there are more and more every year, which is fantastic. But if somehow we could formalize become more systematic? I'm just trying to think out loud. Of Is the solution in the nonprofit area? 
I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, that's a good question. And there are organizations out there that are trying to work on that, on trying to create a solution and change the system. Alea in Minneapolis is a really good organization. They're trying to create a change within the child welfare system and restructure it, which is a huge undertaking just in that area alone. But I think there's a lot of different things we can do to make a difference, to change things. But yeah, the overall system really needs to change. We really need to get rid of it and start over. Hmm. Which is a very, very difficult thing to do. You almost have to pilot it someplace. It's impossible. I mean, we really can't do it. Yeah. But there are things we could do to change. There are ways we could make a difference. We can make improvements, sure. Well, let's let's that's actually a good segue into your organization because that's what you're trying to do in your corner of the world. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization, Second Shift, and what is it that you do? Basically, I mean, we started because we know that the one factor that changes all the outcomes and makes all the difference is connection to at least one caring, stable adult. So our bottom line objective is to provide and ensure meaningful connection. However, we don't feel that connection can be made and maintained if basic needs are not met. So we also work to prevent and alleviate the homelessness and teach life skills and assist with education and employment goals and provide emergency and startup assistance. So we address those needs through a variety of programs. We provide case management to all of our clients. We recruit and train and match mentors. We provide emergency assistance with gift cards and startup assistance through our beginning bin program. And beginning bins are large plastic bins filled with household goods that we collect and we pass out to young people who need them. We created and published a notebook called Life Books. And Life stands for Living Independently for Everyone. And these are distributed by our state's DHR Independent Living Office and Children's Aid Society to the graduating youth who are in care. And these include resources and information on most of the life skills that they need, along with a pouch to hold personal documents. We also combine the connection and housing needs in our program, A Place to Stay. And STAY stands for Sustain and Transition Aging Out Youth. So STAY is a host home program that connects homeless youth with host home providers who then mentor and teach life skills in the context of daily living, just like our families do. So this allows the youth to prepare and transition safely into independence at their own pace. So that's kind of, that's our programs. Second Shift began in 2017. And we're halfway through our fourth year, and so far we've assisted over 500 youth in some capacity. Wow, that's really, really great. I'm going to try to bridge back to your book. Did you ever publish your book, and are you using revenues from that book to support Second Shift? You know what? We never did publish that book. It's morphed into a new program. We are going to be launching in May a podcast of our own called Ah. Carefree. And that's the book kind of turned into the podcast, and we're still going to share their stories. And May is National Foster Care Awareness Month. And so that is our awareness project, is to bring awareness to the general public about what life is really like in foster care and what the kids go through. And we're also going to show, you know, the different perspectives of foster care. So we're going to include professionals and foster families and other nonprofits and 
kind of highlight the good, the bad, all of it, so that people are more aware and educated about foster care for our young people. Oh, that's fantastic. I am really glad of that. We'll have to make sure you're in our database when you get that up and running. Well, let me ask this. You've got a lot going on, but it sounds like you don't actually have like a transitional living program in that you own housing that young people come and live in. Not currently. We do have a program called Homefulness. COVID kind of complicated things for us for a little while. So it's paused right now, but we do have a program in place for that. But our program, A Place to Stay, is our transitional living program currently. So when we place a young person in a host home, then they work with them to transition them and just kind of meet them where they are. We have assessments so that we can look at what life skills they still need and, and individualize the program. So that's, that fits that need. Okay. And now this is an interesting model. I don't know that I've heard of a host home program before. So could you share what that looks like, how it works? How do you find these host homes? What kind of training do you give the adults who are living there? I know one concern that people might have are, are there any liability issues and do you need to do background checks? I'm just, I'm curious mm-hmm. how you set that up so that you have homes available to these young people. Right. Those are good questions too. And those are questions we get all the time. So our host home mentors are just mentors who have a space in their home and are willing to open up their home. And they're very much like foster families, but their goal is to help the young person to leave the house and transition into independence. They do go through a training. We have a training program. All of our mentors and volunteers attend it And it begins with an orientation, which is a couple hours long, and then everybody breaks for lunch, and then they come back, and it continues with the training, which is throughout the afternoon. And we train them on trauma-informed care and how to create and facilitate resilience and, you know, what foster care is like. And we give them some tools about how to communicate and how to connect to the young people who they're with. And then with our host home providers, we also work with them weekly. So we're in the home with them mediating and training and counseling them and the young person every week for at least a couple months. And then we gradually decrease so that they see us every couple of weeks and then once a month. And, you know, as they become more confident and as the young person moves toward independence, they do have background checks and interviews. And we have home sharing assessments that we go through, which ask questions like, you know, do you leave the dishes in the sink or put them on the counter? (laughs) Do you listen to your music um, loud or do you like soft music? So we try to put all that on the table so that all of those little problems can be worked out ahead of time. (laughs) Mm, Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, Going to meet a mentor you know, at a coffee shop is very different than living in the house. (laughs) I mean, you you essentially have a housemate there that you've got to learn how to live with. Exactly. Which is a good life lesson in and of itself. It is. And for the young people that are in that situation, it's perfect for them. It's, they've been very successful. It's not for all of our young people. Some of our young people don't want to be in a home with somebody. They don't even want a relationship with somebody. So we just try to meet them where they're at also. (laughs) Well, you know, you raise an interesting question. So your young people are, you're serving them not in a residential facility or homes or anything. So you go to them, they come to you. 
How do you get together with your young people or is it all online nowadays? There are a lot of different ways that our young people have come to us. We are partners with State DHR, with the Independent Living Office. So we get a lot of referrals from our Department of Human Resources. But we also get referrals from other agencies and stakeholders in the community. And some of our young people have self-referred. They found us online and contacted us. Um, We had one young lady who just contacted us and said, you know, I don't have a driver's license and I need a driver's license and otherwise I'm good. Can you help me with that? And And we connected to her and helped her get her driver's license. And she did have some other needs after that. And so we worked with her about a year and she is successfully independent now. So each young person is going to have a different set of needs, different circumstances, and you adjust your program to meet those needs, it sounds like. That's true. We started out, we just felt like a cookie cutter agency was not going to work. Each young person is so individual in what they need and what they've learned even coming from the same place, even from the same residential facility. You know, we might have somebody who needs to learn to drive and somebody else who's never had a job before, and they need to find a way to learn the life skills that they're lacking. So we have to meet them where they are. I just don't see another way to do it. Right. And are your mentors, are they paid or are they volunteers? No, they're volunteers, although the mentors in a place to stay do receive a small amount of rent or program fee, and that is just so the young person can begin paying rent and start getting used to paying those bills. So we've had mentors, though, that say they don't want to profit from that. They don't want to have that, but that's their choice. And you have mentors that aren't part of a place to stay that are mentoring young people as well? Right. Okay. And those are all volunteers as well, I assume? They are. Okay. So how many staff and volunteers do you have all together? Well, currently we have about half a dozen staff. We have some that are payroll staff and some contract staff that come in. And then our volunteers and mentors throughout the past, I'm going to say throughout the past four years, we've had about 20. Many of them are not with us anymore because their young person becomes independent or moves on. And we found that most mentors don't want to mentor again after they've mentored because that relationship is so personal and close mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's hard to then just mentor again. So we've lost some over the years, but they've done great jobs. Okay. Wonderful. And do you work with any community partners to help you achieve your mission? We do. We have quite a few partners. We really believe in being connected to the community. We have some great partners that have different different missions. We have one who provides food for us and we have a partner who helps us with transportation needs. So just depends on what we are lacking and what they have. We also partner with a counseling agency to refer our young people for counseling so that they can get the um, clinical care that they might need. Okay. Help me understand the partnership for the transportation needs because I can see some organizations might be interested in that. What how is this partner helping you with transportation? Well, this organization is called Driving Hope, and they have provided cars for some of our young people and have at times provided a ride. We had a young man who needed to go to court, and they helped him with that. They've helped with driver's license, getting a young person to a driver's license office so that they could you know, take their test. So anything transportation-related is their mission. So they're a great partner because we can't always do that. So they've really helped with that. It's a great organization. 
Yeah, that's terrific. I don't know how many organizations like that are out there, but it's something that other organizations could look into. I know. There need to be more. Yes. <laughs> there really do. And if anybody's listening who's looking to start a nonprofit. <laughs> yes, that's a good this, one. <laughs> this would be a great one because you could start out just by, you know, kind of being the Uber to young foster youth and those who have aged out. I know even young people who are in foster care, there's probably more hoops to jump through, but a lot of young people have trouble getting to their life skills classes and their the programs and nonprofits that are around might not be within walking distance or even within bicycling distance. So if they don't have a car, they're stuck. So even, you know, helping those young people get around would be a big help. Huge help. Yeah. There's a big gap there. So yes, I'm with you. If anybody wants to start a nonprofit, that is a need. That yes. Needs to be All right. See, we're already starting to solve the problem right here. Good. <laughs> we have to. Well, you also mentioned that you provide emergency assistance. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like part of your budget is set aside for what kind of emergencies? Any type of emergency. In fact, during COVID this past year, we paused all of our programming and just did emergency assistance. We're just now coming back online with our other programs. But the emergency assistance we provide is mostly in the form of gift cards. We do not provide cash. So we're a non-cash provision organization. We've provided utility assistance and rent assistance a lot over the last year. Transportation. So we might send somebody a Uber gift card. Groceries all the time, food, baby supplies, educational support. We might buy somebody's books. It depends on what they need. But if they don't have the ability to get it, you know, sometimes just $25 can make the difference between being homeless and not being homeless. Because if you have to choose to eat or pay your rent, a lot of times they're going to choose to eat and they're going to order a pizza and their money's gone and they don't have rent. And so then they're potentially facing homelessness. So if we can step in and help to alleviate that emergency so that they can, you know, stay stable and sustain independence, then that prevents their homelessness. Right, right. And was this primarily in this last year with COVID, were you supporting and helping the youth you already had connections with? Or have you been bringing new youth into the program even over the past year? Well, we have brought new youth in. When the pandemic first emerged, we did put a halt on new referrals for a couple months just to recreate you know, what we were doing and understand what the need was going to be. But we have brought in new young people throughout this year. And how has the year living with COVID, in your mind, maybe changed your program for good? Are, are there any changes for the good or the bad, right, that you believe that will remain moving forward? That's a really good question. I'm not sure we've even really evaluated that, but I think we've really loosened up on emergency assistance. Before COVID, we had limits and we were more restrictive, but I think COVID revealed to us that the need is the need. And sometimes it's huge and sometimes it's bigger than those limits that we might have set. So I think we became freer. You know, if somebody needed rent money before COVID, we might have given him part of the rent money because that was our policy. And we threw that policy out with COVID. And so I'm not sure that we're really going to have those same limits now because we did see the difference. 
the relief of stress when a young person, you know, doesn't have their rent money and is facing eviction, being able to know that their rent is completely paid and they can focus on, you know, trying to bring in the money and pay their utilities or finish school or just go to work, you know, without that hanging over their head. I think we've seen a big difference there. I think that might be a change. Do you find that you do more online that might continue on after this? Or are you primarily an in-person program and will remain an in-person program? (laughs) We stayed in person throughout COVID. Our client care advocates who work with our young people and our mentors, and they continued to meet with them. We use safety protocol. The only thing that went online, we did mentor training virtually and just our own meetings you know, within the agency was virtually, but we never did anything with the young people virtually. That just doesn't work with them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the mentors who are in a place to stay program, how do you find those mentors who are willing to open up their home to a young person? And then how do you match them with the young person who's going to be able to be most successful in that home? We find them in a lot of different ways. We do a lot of promotion on social media within our community. So we find a lot of people who just really want to help. And the people who choose to be in a place to stay are usually the people that come to us and tell us, you know, I have space, I have room, and I want to help. So then we begin working with them. As far as matching, we go through the assessments and our goal is to have enough mentors and we haven't achieved this yet, but our goal is to have enough mentors that our young people can choose because we want to flip the script for them because throughout foster care, they didn't have that choice and they were either put in a residential facility or placed in a foster home and they never had the choice to choose. So we want to give them that choice. So we're hoping to get to the point one day where we have a whole backlog of mentors and we can say, you know, here's two or three families that might fit, you know, who do you want to meet? And then they can go and meet them and they can interview them and they can make that decision. Mm -hmm. So that's our goal. Yeah. It just crossed my mind and I'm not saying that's, you know, what you do or what anybody should do, but it seems like you might be able to, an organization that's wanting to set something like this up, could partner with a local church because I would imagine that there might be families within that church, maybe their own children have left home and, you know, they're really wanting to maybe support a young person in this type of situation, but they don't know it exists. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. That awareness, like maybe go meet with some churches and see if there's any church that would want to, you know, take that on as one of their services. That's exactly what we're doing. Uh Aha. We're working with churches (laughs) and trying to meet with different churches. In fact, we are beginning, just beginning to launch a full campaign to try to recruit churches and go in and do individual trainings and meetings within churches. So yes, right on track, Lynn. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) And I did not even look it up ahead of time. (laughs) I wasn't even known. You just read my mind. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm going to take a step back. Now that I know about your program, I'm very curious. Where did the name Second Shift come from? (laughs) There's a great story behind that. Oh, great. Um, When we were forming the organization and trying to figure out a name, we decided to have a name the nonprofit 
contest on social media. And so we had a contest and we gave away a $25 gift card and had people from all over the country give their ideas for names. So the name Second Shift is actually the idea of moving from their childhood to that place of transition before adulthood. And our logo is three rings that intersect. And there's a yellow ring that's childhood. And then there's a blue ring that's the transitional time. And that's us. And then there's a green ring, which green is, you know, for life and growth. And that's their adulthood, their healthy, growing, sustainable adulthood. So that's where our name came from. And that's what our logo means. Wow, that's terrific. Thank you. I'm glad I asked that. (laughs) Me too. Well, let me ask this then, just I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation. And you said that one of the most, if not the most important thing that a young person in foster care really needs is a connection to a stable, caring adult. Yes. And I know that research has shown that as well. This is not something that, you know, people are just saying and picking out of thin air. Research has demonstrated that this is one of, if not the key factor in helping young people in foster care be successful transitioning to adulthood. So just from your perspective and the young people you've worked with over the years, why do you think that is the case? I think that just about any crisis or obstacle can be navigated with someone who can help you navigate it. And in fact, if I can tell you a story real quick, one of our very early clients He had aged out and he had the perfect plan in place. I mean, I have not seen before or since such a perfect plan. He had a job. The only thing he didn't have was transportation, but we got him a bike. But he had a job and he had an apartment. He had a roommate to share expenses. He aged out really well. He had stayed in until he was 21. And so he had had some, a little bit of college under his belt. Everything was going really good for him. And he left care and he moved into his apartment and him and his roommate were working and he was doing great. Even all the things in his apartment had been donated. So it was furnished. It was really nice and everything was great until his roommate became ill. And then when his roommate became ill, he could no longer stay in that apartment. He moved home to be with his parents. And when that happened, the young person that we were working with just became so stressed, all that trauma in his life that was not you know, totally healed, just kind of bubbled up. And he was not able to go to work. He just, you know, in fight, flight and freeze, he just froze and he was not able to continue going to work. So he lost his job. And then when he lost his job, he couldn't pay any of the bills. And so he was faced with eviction. So he lost his apartment. When that happened, we offered to help him with his things and he just couldn't even deal with that. He left all of his possessions and he found a distant relative who was not healthy and moved in with them. And that began a cycle that lasted two years of homelessness, of him being homeless and depressed and unemployed And he bounced around from relative's home to relative's home, and he was in shelters, and none of that was healthy, and all of it just pulled him down farther and farther. But, Lynn, the one thing he had was connection to a caring, stable adult. And throughout that entire two years, he would contact his mentor at least once a week and say, I'm alive. And those were just his words. He would just contact them and say, I'm alive. And he stayed in touch with them, and they provided 
you know, emotional connection to him throughout this time and encouraged him and stuck with him. And eventually he began to come out of this and just pull himself out. He began to get jobs and he found a healthier place to live. And then he enlisted in the army. And today that young man is 24 years old and he's in the army and he is healthy and he's sustaining independence and he's doing great. And the one thing that made a difference was that connection to the caring, stable adult. And if that young man had not had that connection with the mentor, do you think that he would have been lost? Yes, there were a couple times he was suicidal, and I'm not sure that the outcome would have been the same. It's one of the things that I've pondered. There are so many programs out there. They don't all have a mentor program. And I don't know that every program needs a mentor program, but in the ideal world, every young person would be connected to an older person. And I know that even if you partner a young person with an adult in a program, that doesn't mean that magic's going to happen. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> they don't get along, <laughs> True. but it's not an automatic thing. But I just, I just think if that's the one key factor that mm-hmm. helps young people succeed, even if it's, you know, through struggles, it doesn't mean they're not going to struggle, but it will help them succeed. Is it something that we need to make sure that the young people have come, you know, water, high water. Let's get them that mentor, that connection. Yes, Lynn. I mean, even back into foster care before they age out. I mean, that's one of the things I'd like to see change in child welfare. We don't need to have eight different social workers in three years. They need to have one person who's walking with them, who knows them and cares about them and can support them, who's trauma-informed and can accept them and help them understand why they do the things that they do. They don't need a whole team of people sitting around a conference table at a meeting, making all of their decisions and discussing all of the things that they did wrong. They need that one person throughout their life. It needs to happen as soon as possible. So I think for Second Shift, the best we can do is connect them to somebody as they're coming out of care or when they come out of care. But to change things, we really need to advocate for that change to take place earlier than later. And it needs to go back to maybe not being in care at all. You know, we need more family preservation work in place. And if they do come into care, then we need to put them with somebody who's going to be consistent so they don't have, you know, the revolving door of social workers. You're right. I think where it begins is instead of instead of just I don't want to say jumping the gun. I'm sure research happens. But while you're researching a family situation, dig into whether there's any extended family or coaches or teachers or somebody in that young person's life who they already know, or at least, you know, might be related to, who could potentially take that person, that young person in, as opposed to just automatically putting them in foster care. I think that should always be part of that stage of assessment. I agree. And we do an assessment with young people. We do a connection tool with them to find out where their heart is, because Very often, there's a person that they're connected to, and sometimes it is a teacher, sometimes it's a social worker, and sometimes it's a therapist or, you know, just somebody that they know. And very often, those people who are in their lives because they're professionals end up not being in their life because they move on, and then there's those ethics 
for those professionals that say you can't have a relationship anymore. That's a broken attachment, though. That's harmful for the young person. So we challenge even that. You know, if a young person has a connection to a social worker or a therapist, we challenge them and say, you know, this is, they're connected to you. How can you remain in their life in some capacity? Because that's an attachment and that's important to them to have that continue, you know, through their life. Right. And even if the young person does have to go into foster care, make sure that connection remains. And with the technology today, there's really no reason not to be able to do that. There's not, is there? Mm-mm. There's just not. No. And there was a time where, yeah, you couldn't help you if you moved. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's what can you do? But nowadays you have all of the online platforms and all of that. Even social workers, you know, I mm-hmm. I struggle to think that, you know, having social workers stay within county boundaries makes sense anymore. It doesn't. A lot of our young people move from county to county. Because, you know, if they're in residential facilities, they may not be in the county that is their home county. That's right. I did that when I was young. I moved to different counties and had handoffs of social workers because of it. Right. I mean, you know. It just seems like I know funding, you know, you'd have to restructure the whole funding and budgeting. But there is a way, technologically speaking, to be able to keep a social worker to stay attached to that young person no matter where they go. I agree. And bottom line, our ethics say whatever's in the best interest of the client. So I argue that the best interest of the client is staying connected and in touch with them. So, mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. I agree. Well, Tammy, we are coming to the end of our hour. I do want to ask you one other question. Well, two other questions. The first is, do you accept donations? We do accept donations. <laughs> We're a 501c3 nonprofit, and we welcome donations and support. And how could people donate to you? Where should they go to donate if they're interested in doing so? Yeah, the best place to donate is to go to our website, which is secondshiftalabama.org. And that's all spelled out, no numbers. So secondshiftalabama.org. And our Facebook page is at Second Shift Alabama. And they can donate and learn more about us mm-hmm. at both places. Wonderful. Or maybe even let you know that they want to be a mentor. That would be lovely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in Alabama. There you go. Yeah. All right. So my last question is this. What do you love most about Second Shift? Seeing the kids that we work with succeed. When they do something that they didn't think they could do, when they get that job or when they get their driver's license or they pay their first month's rent and they're surprised that they're at that place because they didn't believe they could be. And then they have that seed of believing in themselves. And we're able to say, you know, you did that. And what else can you do? And they begin to grow that. Seeing that is the very best thing. Wonderful. Well, Tammy, thank you so much for being part of our podcast series. I have really enjoyed talking with you and learning about your organization. And I do wish you all the best as you're getting your programs up and running again, getting carefree, the podcast started, uh, your homefulness program, you know, getting back on that. I just wish you all the best with all of the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Lynn. I've really enjoyed talking to you too. This has been fun. It has been. Thank you. Thank you for all of those who have listened to the end. We really appreciate you 
listening to our podcast, and we put one out every couple weeks or so. You can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, or you can go to pretty much any podcast distribution platform, and you'll find us there as well. So thank you, and we'll look forward until the next time.